Dotnet Rocks episode 912, with guests Gordon Poo, Dexter Baga, Chris Lucian, and Aaron Griffith. Recorded live Thursday, September 5th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Windows Azure, who wants you as an MSDN subscriber to activate your free Windows Azure credits and start building your own dev test environment in the cloud. Activate before September 30th for a chance to win a 2013 Aston Martin V8 Vantage sports car. Go to dotnetrocks.com slash Azure to enter and win. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard, and we're, we're having a good time. I am, sir. I got you toys. Yeah, well, I got something that you're going to love. Uh, mine are just new LED MR16s. Oh, that's awesome. I figured out that I have 150 MR16s in the house. Yeah. And so I've been trying different bulbs, mostly worrying about the wife acceptance factor. Yeah. Remembering that I have a house full of women with extremely sensitive eyes to any color change or anything at all. Yep, yep. So I finally found one. This It's called Sora, S-O-R-A-A. Mm-hmm. Exactly the form factor of an MR-16. No bulges, no extra width or anything. And you're talking about your basic floodlight that goes in a, in a recessed yeah the little 12 volt plug yeah. they're like a dollar 25 at yeah. at uh, home depot right these are 30 bucks a crack mind you but they're seven watts 2700 kelvin at uh, perfect beam like it's it i think it's the one it's flawless wow great so I'm, I'm beginning to start doing the retrofit but i'm gonna have to buy you know i just did the numbers there that's like 4500 dollars worth of light bulbs yeah on the other hand, they're 25,000 hours each, so mm. the amount of power consumption, I mean, we're talking about cutting the power consumption for lighting in this house by down to, you know, yep. 20%. Yep, I've already done it to my house. It's, so it's, it's something thing. to do, and it's been a, been a real challenge to get the right bulb, so I'm yeah. pretty stoked about that. Very cool. Hey, better know framework time. You're going to love it. Okay, what do you got, buddy? This is a blog post from 404blog, blog uh, for, uh, blog404.com, uh, from May 26, 2011. You go to tinyurl.com slash crazylang, L-A-N-G. This is the top 10 crazy programming languages. If you're a hardcore programmer and think you know all the computer programming languages and there's nothing left in the world, then just hold on. <laughs> okay, this is going to be good. There are many, many crazy and weird programming languages you might not even have heard of. Yes, they do work. There are rules for languages to work, but they are so much freaking crazy. Here's a compilation of the top 10, and I'm only going to read the first one, because the first one is called Brain F***. <laughs> Rapid application development with only three bits. Three bits? Three bits. What? <laughs> Now, okay, this is not safe for work, so because it does have the F word in it, and if you go to the link there, it's on Wikipedia. Uh, 
As the name, so is the craziness. It was the invention of Urban Mueller, designed to realize its implementation in the smallest possible compiler, and his master plan came into existence in 1993. Wow. Known for its extreme minimalism and controversial name, BF comprises only eight commands, (laughs) plus, minus, period, less than, greater than, comma, angle, bracket left, and bracket right. And it's practically useless. However, recently, few decoders have been designed to render it useful enough. <laughs> wow. That's messed up. And there's a few more there. There's 10 of them. Okay. That'll keep you busy for a while. That's funny. Good stuff. Oh, you're hilarious. Oh, you know, it's one of those days. <laughs> nice find. Thanks. Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 838, and that's the one we did at CodeMash, January of 2013. Mm -hmm. And the title of the panel discussion, if you recall, was, Is Agile Dead? Yeah. Because why wouldn't you? And there's a lot, by the way, we got a lot of comments on that show, because I think we pretty much nailed down that Agile's not dead right at the beginning of the show. Yeah, we're just trying to get ratings. Well, it was a bit of a baited topic, but, you know, that's the fun part about putting a bunch of agile people on a panel and going, so why do you people do all day anyway? (laughs) But I got to, I really appreciate Darren Gillis's comment here. And Darren says, uh, great discussion on the state of agile today, which is what that show really turned into. I've been a big proponent of agile methodologies for the past six years. And prior to turning to agile, like most, I was wrapped up in waterfall and trying impossibly to make it work, convincing myself that creating UML diagrams and producing full requirements up front was achievable and would lead to success across any project as long as it was done properly. Producing software via iterations that embraced change was foreign. However, my first attraction to Agile was the belief that projects could succeed without large investments in creating front-loaded requirements. It was liberating to realize that requirements did not have to be carved in stone without room for change, but rather evolve over the life of the project. As I got more involved in Agile and embraced some of the other tenants such as TDD, Sprints, User Stories, and the aspects of Scrum, Waterfall became a dirty word and a forgotten relic of the past. Sadly, the upswing of Agile came so fast and caught on so quickly in the last few years, for some reason many have taken what has made it great and contorted it into something that has been hard to classify and to justify in some cases. And this is, you know, refers to something we talked about a lot on that panel of Agile but. Right. In some respects, because of the misuse and misunderstandings of methodologies, Agile itself is now starting to become a dirty word. I think going forward, for those of us that have understood and adopted Agile, we just drop the use of the term and instead simply continue to utilize the methodologies in software projects and only concentrate on what really matters, churning out successful software. Mm -hmm. If we employ the tenets of Agile under the cover of success, who could argue with that? Right. Yeah, I think there was another thing that was said during that panel. At what point did we stop saying agile development and start saying building software yeah just development because it's just the way things work so totally with you darren i appreciate that it's it has gone through that whole story arc and more and certainly that's where we got to on the panel so thanks a lot for your comment a dotnet rocks mug is on its way to you and if you'd like a dotnet rocks mug just write a comment on the website at dotnet rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps we've got them for ios android windows phone 7 and 8 and even windows 8 and all those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises, who'd love to build you an app. You yeah. can find them at diatomenterprises.com. Absolutely. 
And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by industry experts. They release over 30 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. They offer a wide range of developer topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack, including a complete curriculum covering Agile. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And uh, we know that uh, the show isn't all about Agile. It's kind of about mob programming. But let's introduce the team. And we're going to actually do something here that's kind of interesting. We're going to have a mob show. So we're, uh, I'm going to talk about the team, and then I'll introduce briefly each of them. They're all gathered around a speakerphone, and we'll see if we can do this show mob style. So the mob programming team of mobprogramming.org fame currently consists of Gordon Poo, Dexter Baga, Chris Lucian, Aaron Griffith, and Woody Zool. And all of them are authors at mobprogramming.org, by the way. For the last two years, they've been working together eight hours a day, five days a week, using the whole team approach they have dubbed mob programming as they create software for Hunter Industries in San Marcos, California. And here's a little info about each of them. Gordon Poo has been a software developer for over 13 years. He shifted from RPG language to Microsoft.net VB and then C Sharp. He had uh, worked in a waterfall environment until 2010 and has been working with the mob programming team since then. He found that the mob programming environment suits him best. Dexter Baga is a software developer who loves to develop software on and off work hours. He enjoys experimenting with various software development techniques and is thrilled to be working with the Hunter mob programming team. Chris Lucian is the creator of Enliven, an augmented reality colorblindness aid, Hashtag Twitadex, a 3D Twitter app, and many games that can all be found at DeadlyApps.com. He loves artificial intelligence, real intelligence, and mob intelligence. Aaron Griffith has been testing and developing software for 20-plus years. He is the creator of the MyHoopChamp app and co-creator of the Baby Activity Logger app. Around 2006, he accidentally fell into agile development methodologies and has been an avid Agilist ever since. And Woody Zool has been programming computers for 30-plus years and works as an Agile coach and development manager. Over the last 15 years, he's worked as an Agile coach, trainer, and extreme programmer. He believes code must be simple, clean, and maintainable to realize the Agile promise of responding to change. He spent many years as an artist, designer, manufacturer of graphics for televised sporting events where deadlines are for real. And by the way, he loves mob programming. Welcome, guys. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you. Oh, my God. So the first thing I need to do is have you each uh, identify yourselves audibly so we know who's talking. Gordon, can you say hi? Hi, this is Gordon. Dexter, hi. Hi, this is Dexter. Chris. Hey, how are you doing? This is Chris. Aaron. This is Aaron. Hello. And Woody. Yep, that's me. All right. Wow, where do we start? Who wants to give us the elevator pitch? I mean, I, I, I got a kind of an idea, but it's probably not what reality is. So who wants to give me the elevator pitch? Well, this is Woody, and I think uh, I can start with that. Um, basically, what we do is we work together all day long at the same computer. We like to say that this is all the brilliant people working together at the same time, in the same space, on the same problem, and at the same computer. So that may seem a little confusing to people, 
Um, how can you all huddle around a single computer? But what we do is we've got a couple monitors, so we broadcast that up onto the wall. So we have two very large, it's like having two large monitors. We have a couple sets of keyboards and mice, so anybody who needs to get at the keyboard can wheel their chair up to the keyboard and right. get to work. So that's the basic setup. I see. So it's kind of like uh, not pair programming, but, you know, programming with five or six people. And you take turns? Is that what you said? Well, that's sort of the idea. We use a process we call driver navigator. You've seen people doing coding dojos probably sure. um, as an exercise when there's five or ten people all working on the same problem at the same time at one computer. This just takes it into our daily work. Right. And the way that we do this with the driver navigator is the driver is the person sitting at the keyboard. We switch that person out every 15 minutes. You could use different time frames, but that's what we use right now. Okay. So that person who's sitting at the keyboard is not necessarily um, programming in the traditional sense. It's everybody together programming. And the person sitting at the keyboard is more like a smart input device. They mm. hear what needs to go into the computer, and they're the ones typing it in. So they're translating what everybody else, we call the navigators, are discussing. They translate that into code. Wow, very cool. So the, the basic idea is that, it, I, that something that we want to get into the computer has to come out of somebody's brain through their mouth so everybody can hear it, discuss it, decide what's going to go into the computer, and, comp and then communicate that well enough to the person who's going to type it in so they can start typing in, and we can go on to the next thing that we're doing. And you guys find that this works well enough. You're not sitting there saying, you know, uh, you know, switch, whatever. You know, you're not reading code to each other, are you? Sometimes, are you? This is Chris. Okay. And uh, so in response to that, uh, we like to think that if anybody's silent, if anybody's not engaged with what is going on, then they probably don't need to be there. Uh, so one of the things that we do while navigating is, uh, we bounce around ideas quite a bit, and there might be somebody who's the idea of kind of a main navigator uh, who is guiding everyone, but that can switch at any time. And so people discuss what the overall architecture should be, what we should be thinking about, and anybody ca can be bringing up ideas on, on how we should move forward. And the idea is, is that as everything gets hashed out, we kind of distill down the best solution that we can come up with as a group. I see. But I guess what I was saying is you're not like reading code to the guy who's typing. You know, the, the guy who's typing and coding knows enough to say that if you, you know, give him a pattern that he can implement the pattern. Yes. Yeah, so we, we try and navigate at the highest level possible. So yeah. we, we start with a general notion of what we want to do. And then if the person needs any uh, extra dictation, then we bring it down a level uh, depending on what their skill level is. Nice. I guess one of the challenges got to be here is how much the driver can do. It, uh, yeah, so there are different levels of uh, ability on the team, and we do think about uh, how we can uh, approach a problem and who who is driving uh, determines what level we'll be navigating at. But we always try and inc increase the level uh, at which we drive so that we can uh, allow them to, to grow as well. Now, what if you actually have, you know, two two pieces, say a client piece and a server piece that need to be working together? Would you have two drivers? 
Well, no, in, in that case, we're still going to work on the one part to get sufficient done to do the other part. Okay. So we're always considering, you know, one thing at a time. If you think of a very limited work in process, that's what we're doing. So we're always working on one thing. So if we're going to have two sides to it, the one driver will be typing to the keyboard, and then when we're ready to do the next little part, let's say we're building them incrementally, we'll do the other one that interacts with it. Everything we do is test-driven, so we always have tests in place, mm. uh, coding by intention, that prove that you know what we're doing is working as we expect it to. And do you really find you get five times the productivity or more with the mob programming model than you did before? Well, I would suggest there isn't any idea of a measurement of the productivity. What we found for ourselves was that this was working extremely well for us, and we were cranking out an awful lot of work. Maybe I, gotcha. I should give you a background of where we started from. Would that be worth doing? Absolutely, yes. Excellent. Um, what had happened for us was uh, this organization more or less had a sort of a siloed situation where each developer was working on their own projects. And uh, as we were learning uh, some of the techniques of, you know, extreme programming, um, such as TDD and pair programming, uh, we were doing a weekly study session of a couple hours where we were sort of doing coding dojos. We would share the keyboard, just like we're talking about. And then we took on a project that was a lot bigger than anyone could have done alone. We decided to meet and do a few um, uh, meetings where we were talking over what was to be done. And as we were doing that, we started passing the keyboard around. And here's what I think is the critical thing. We do a lot of retrospectives. And at the end of that week, we all found that that was very productive for us and we wanted to do more of it. So every time we do a retrospective, we take an action item and act on it. And that's what we started doing. It only took us a couple of weeks to realize we were getting an awful lot done without mm. any problems. And mm. it, it was kind of the secret to it was the quality work was very, very high. The amount of work we were turning out was at least as high and maybe in some cases a lot higher than what we were doing before. So we yeah. just kept doing it. Wow. So we're just talking about really low number of bugs? Yeah, I'll let somebody else um, address that. So this Dexter. So we had a lot of projects. So in the past year or two, we had at least 20 projects that we worked on. And maybe there's one or two bugs, uh, but they were very minimal uh, bugs. They were not critical at all, at all and they're probably just some UI um, issues. So when we do our work, we basically have instant code review, and that is really giving us the ability to not have uh, the bugs that you would normally get when uh, when we had a few years ago where we had to literally have the developer hand off the code or the program to a tester and then have the tester do their work, and then we can get their approval and release the product. In our case, we're getting instant review from the team. We're getting high quality the moment that we actually try to deploy the product, and we're not really getting any calls for from our customers um, since they don't really have or have seen any problems with it. So have you guys, any of you guys, done pair programming? Uh, yeah, many of us have uh, okay. in different situations. Um, we were kind of doing a little bit of pairing before we started doing uh, mob programming here even. And 
this this has ended up being even higher quality than than the work we did there. And I want to add on, on to something that Dexter was saying. Um, in in our work, we do a lot of TDD, and uh, you know, in, in pairs even, or uh, as a single developer, um, people can become lazy or, or uh, not as pr- pragmatic. And I think when when you have five people uh, there looking at the code. Uh, at least someone there is going to be saying, hey, shouldn't we be testing this? So our, our level of code coverage is actually affected by this. And uh, beyond that, if, if anything's actually taking up too much of our time, um, say a repetitive task or something that a developer would have normally done uh, over and over again that could be automated, um, once you're wasting, if you're wasting one or two people's time, it's not as noticeable as if you're wasting five people's time. Right. And so... One thing that we also gain out of this that improves the, uh, the amount of output that we have is the fact that we automate anything that we can um, that that can be automated because we don't have time to waste on on uh, doing repetitive tasks. Got it. So that yeah, that was my follow up question was how how can you compare this to? Because I guess that's the same argument that you hear from uh, uh, from pair programming. It was instant code review, you know, all that stuff. So you're just saying that it is. Pair programming plus plus, really, just sort of amped up. Every, all the benefits uh, amped up. Yeah, and, and uh, in that extent, also, you, you talk about having different perspectives when you're doing pair, pair programming. And one of the big things that we've noticed is that with, with five people here, you can, you can discuss a lot more about which approach will be better or, or, or not as good. And, you know, if there's any kind of uh, disagreement as which way we should go, we end up, we end up just choosing one of them and trying it out. And if it works, we just continue going forward. And if not, then we switch over to the other and, and try that. What about domain expertise? So we have everyone from our, our, in our groups, we have a uh, database and uh, testers as, as well as uh senior level developers and so on. And so um, everybody from every domain that we have available to us is, is working with us, uh, as well as the business experts, which we try and have mob with us as, as often as we can. Yeah, I, mean, I would think you'd want to have a business expert there the whole time. Well, that, that's one um, aspect of this that we don't have, but we have access to our business experts all the time. So, for example... Um, Almost within a minute, we can get an answer to any question, but we like to have our business right. experts visiting with us um, daily, if not throughout the day. Sometimes they're, they come and sit with us for an hour or two, but we can usually round trip with them daily, determine the next step, steer towards the next best thing for us to be doing, and then review it You know, within you know, the next 24 hours, we're reviewing it with them. And so it's it's working pretty good. Ideally, we would have the business experts sitting with us the whole time. And I've certainly had the experience of having the business guy on a conference call while we were coding, you know, so that he was still working on his things, but we could interrupt each other anytime we wanted. Well, that's a good way to go. We actually do something like that sometimes, and we can do screen shares at any time as well. Um, we like face-to-face best, if possible, or side-by-side. Yeah. But when we, you know, we'll compromise whatever we need to do. But I'd like to make this point. If it takes you five minutes to get an answer as opposed to one minute to get that, get an answer, you, you know, there's a, you're starting to really slow down. And I've seen environments where you, it takes you a day or two. And I worked at one once where it took you a week to get an answer to any question. You know, you can see how that would turn a one week project into a six month project or more. 
Um, sure. And nobody's or happy. you go off in the wrong directions, right? This, this actually waiting for the correct answer is like, oh, we got to look productive. Keep writing code. Just, you know, now we can happily write the wrong code instead. Yeah, I think a lot of projects sort of depend on that slow process to make sure that uh, it's not that that they're not um, turning out a, a bad work. But what really ends up happening is they end up turning out bad work anyways. You know, they're, they're, right. they're cloistering yeah. the people who can answer questions so that they, they get a full plate of questions to answer and we're not wasting their time, so to speak. But what we really need is for them to be available all the time, that full bandwidth. I think Dexter might have something to say here on that. I would like to interject about the comment that Woody made about if you don't get a response from them within one minute, as opposed to, you know, some his experience, you can give him five minutes or sometimes a week to get a response. I think that the, the core is that if you work with small chunks of code, small chunks of functionality to your application, that you there's not too many discussions that needs to be made or thinking to be made to make to get that response from the, the business users or from your customers. Sure. So smaller chances you do, the, the better chance that you will get a response immediately. Do you guys see this as the future of development? I would say this is probably something we wouldn't uh, recommend to anyone else. I mean, it's definitely something worth trying. Um, you know, you would not recommend it. I, I would not recommend it. I mean, uh, what what I would recommend is you know maybe starting out with like a dojo session or um, you know some type of, of group learning session. And you know, retrospect on that. See, uh, see what your what your team thinks, and just move from there. See if you can if you can build up to it. Just sort of experiment. So why why wouldn't you recommend it? Just because? Well, it's it's not it's not going to be a set practice. And so um, one thing that the way that we came here, the way that we got here is uh, through retrospectives. And so we asked ourselves, what will work best for us? And we, we do that all the time. And so we do impromptu retrospectives. We do kind of a monthly retrospectives and, and so on and so forth. And so um, really, I think the lesson for us out of this whole thing is that this is probably the best way that we've found so far to do work. And we're going to continue evaluating what is helping us and, and what is working well with uh, for us and what we can eliminate that isn't being helpful for us. And so it, it's not so much about whether or not this is a set practice uh, as that teams should be retrospecting and finding out what works for them. Yeah. Um, we write about our experiences, and that might tell other people uh, how um, – how they can try it out. But uh, I don't know if we'd ne- necessarily say that this would be the best thing for somebody to do right sure. away. Okay, and that's that's so, a very agile answer. I, I think the way that we would put it is this. We we have a story to share. Um, we, we started doing this. Somebody came by uh, who was doing some training here, and they saw what we were doing, and they started telling other people about it. And then we started getting people asking us about it. I was at the uh, Agile Alliance conference in 2012, and I had about 15 or 20 people come up to me and say, what the heck are you guys doing? We want to hear about it. So we recognize that this is something that we'd like to share that might be helpful to people. But we're not saying, oh, you should go get your mob programming certification and you're, you're not a very good programmer if you don't learn how to do mob programming. It's just something yeah. that's interesting and working for us. And we feel 
if people want to hear about it, we want to share it. It's kind of a refreshing attitude, actually. <laughs> well, we, we invite people to come visit us. We actually had a group come down from uh, Portland about a, a month ago. They flew down in the morning, the four guys flew down in the morning, spent the entire day with us, and flew back at night. Um, they've been doing pair programming or, or mob programming themselves after seeing us talk about it at a conference, and they just wanted to come see us doing it here. We've had about 10 or 15 visitors over the last year who just come in, spend four or five hours with us, and um, share some interesting things they're doing and show us and then sit and work with us. It's just something we feel this is part of the camaraderie of what programming should be about, and yet so often we're just locked up in our cubicles and not interacting with other human-like creatures, which most programmers are. Hey, Richard. Yes, sir. You know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. You got it. It's time to realize there's no way in the world to make a joke about mob programming. <laughs> I got nothing, man. You got nothing? I got nothing. That's funny. <laughs> no, it's pretty sad, actually. <sighs> no, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Before I do that, I got to tell you about Telerik's agile project management solution, Team Pulse. Team Pulse comes with a rich set of features for data intelligence, the capturing of stakeholder feedback, as well as a complete tracking of work items. Team Pulse can be easily added on on top of any TFS environment, including TFS versions 2008, 2010, and 2012. The tool even comes with a TFS wizard that'll allow non-technical users to set the whole thing up in seconds. Try Telerik Team Pulse now at tinyurl.com slash TFS. Or just go to Telerik.com and click on Team Pulse. Awesome. So who's our winner tonight? Today's winner is Christopher Downard. Congratulations, Christopher. Golf clap for Christopher Downard. And uh, he just won the DevCraft Complete Collection, Everything Telerik Does in One Box. They've been a great sponsor for us. They make uh, great products. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, and answer a few questions. Join the fan club. We have thousands of members. We give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection in every show. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology. All right. Well, we like to ask our guests, and I don't know how we're going to do this in any amount of time, but we'll just go around. And if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, guys, what would you buy? <laughs> Oh my goodness. I'm going to go and order. Gordon, what would you buy with five grand today? Toys, technology. Well, I personally would like to have a couple of uh, those slate tablets. Ooh. Okay. Panasonic just announced a 20 inch tablet with a 4K display in it 3840 by 2160. Wow, wow. wow. Anything with a 4K display would be nice to have right now. <laughs> Any 4K displays right up there. They're they're three to four thousand bucks. That'll blow most of your five grand right off the top. Yeah. Actually, for for us, for the mobbers, I think it would be really awesome to see a, a two 4K display projectors in our uh, mob pit. That will take out your five grand, my friend. Those 4K projectors run about twenty five grand. Yeah, I think I went way too far. The mob will pull their money to buy the two 4K projectors. All right, this is five of you, five grand each, 25 grand, you get yourself a projector. Hey, wait a minute now. We're not giving away five Ah. grand times five. (laughs) Oh, no, I I think I like this mob 
solution. The what does the mob want? Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. But yeah, uh, twenty the Sony 4K home theater ES projector in stock twenty four thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars ninety nine cent with free shipping. Oh man, <laughs> add oh, to man. cart. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Yeah, bit expensive. Good toy though. Good toy. Yeah. So guys. We've talked about this a couple of times now, about your whole the attitude towards retrospective, that this is what led you to mob programming. Can you talk about what the conversation was in the retrospective? How did you get here from there? This is Woody. Here's the thing. Um, in our retrospectives, we do a very rapid exercise of gathering um, thoughts about what has gone well, sort of in a typical retrospective, like you might... Uh, you know, see in any agile organization. Without much discussion, we just gather onto little post-it notes, get them up on the board, arrange them as per things that are similar to each other, and then see what groupings occur. This kind of affinity grouping, they call it, uh, gets us real quick to see what we're all thinking about at the same time. So when we see a large grouping of something like, we really liked it that we were sitting together programming, then we'll talk about it. And when we say, well, that's something that's working for us, we um, then we just say, let's turn that up a notch. Let's do some more of that. What happened for us on that one was we found we were at the end of each meeting we had, we would look out I- into our Outlook system to see if there, we could arrange for another room immediately afterwards because on our campus here, we'd have to go from meeting room to meeting room. We'd grab all our stuff and run to that other meeting room. So it was becoming clear to us really quickly from our actions that this was something we were liking. But our retrospectives kind of just locked that down. So we, that, that's basically what happened. It wasn't a lot of discussion. It was just agreement as all those post-it notes were gathering together that said, you know, we like working together like this, that it was pointing to us to maybe this is something we need to do more of. I think it took about three weeks before we realized we need to find a room where we could keep all the time. And uh, we were able to do that. How long were you programming together before you, the, you got into the mob programming side? Some of the guys here have been here for a number of years almost up to 15 years, and some of us were newcomers. So we'd, we'd really been working as, as a team, sitting separately for about up to six months as we started to identify that these working meetings were starting to really be what we wanted to do. And you guys, uh, it probably helps that you're all friends. Do you do stuff outside of uh, uh, programming to... You know, I guess, you know, it's an overused term, but, you know, for team building or does that just happen naturally? We uh, we usually over lunch, we go hiking most days. So we have, we have a nice area around here with lots of trails. So we go hiking. Um, so, yeah, that that helps, too, that we all get along. And that's a, that's sort of a big part of it is that we all there's a there's a high level of respect and we try to treat each other with kindness and. You know, the, the thing you tell your kid, you know, treat others as you would want to be treated, that type of thing. Right. Turns out that's pretty good advice. A lot of us do uh, uh, land parties, too, outside of this. So those of us that like video games. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is Gordon. I think before we decide to uh, do mob, mob programming, uh, we have agreement for everybody opens his mind. And uh, we have a totally uh, an, uh, transparency in our environment. So that's very important. We just, uh, uh, from beginning, we decide to put our ego uh, outside the door. 
So that's very important for the for this kind of a, a team environment. And I buy into the fact that it's clear you guys all have a high trust in each other and like working together like this. I just got to imagine it's tough to sell to management. Oh, no, no, no. It's just one computer for all five of us. Yeah, I'm, this is Aaron. Um, I'm I'm the newest member of the mob. I've been on the team about a year. And that was initially one of the hardest things for me is, um, you know, our boss would come in and from other environments I've been in, you know, it's like, oh, no, here comes the boss and there's five people sitting around, you know, jump under a desk or hide or something because this isn't going to go over well. But, you know, that's part of what allows us to do this is that our boss, he buys into what we're doing. Right. He sees what we're doing. He sees our productivity. So, and, and he's helped make it happen. So that's a, that's really a bonus for us. It strikes me that you guys have created a proof that productivity and programming doesn't have a lot to do with typing. Right. <laughs> that's a great point. I, I, I think that's a, that's kind of gone around for a, a long time. It's that programming isn't typing. And, and it, kind of a very interesting thing to me, a side effect of the mob programming was a lot of the problems that usually block us from getting work done um, just automatically faded away. For example, we brought up earlier sort of the idea of uh, bugs. Well, technical debt is one of the things. We, we don't really gather technical debt because we, with five people watching everything all the time, we're stopping ourselves from giving up and saying, oh, well, I just need to get this done. Somebody's going to say, look, that's going to come back to bite us. Let's fix that. And things right. like making decisions. Decision-making is a really difficult thing. We don't realize how hard it is. We're reluctant to make decisions sometimes because we're afraid we're going to get blamed for something right. or that we're the ones who are going to need to prove later that we were right, and therefore we don't let people tell us we were wrong. You know, we kind of uh, have to keep proving over and over again we made a good decision. And another really interesting thing about decision-making is when when it's a competitive environment, you might not go ask somebody for help because it'll look bad on your record that you had to ask for help. Right, sure. Here we just share we share in the decisions. So if it's a bad decision, we all made the bad decision. If it's a good decision, we all made the good decision. Well, yeah, you're also a lot less likely to make a bad decision if five of you agree that it's a good decision. At least we do not have anybody to to blame. <laughs> right. So, of course, it was a good decision because we all agreed on it. I, I, I just think you'd be somewhat intimidating to any to, to any of the uh, business outsiders where they say, why did you make this decision? We all agreed on it. It was the five of us together. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's consensus, I guess. At the, at it's the mob. It's the mob. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. I, I think I'd like to make this point. When, when you just got one person, their likelihood of going out uh, tarring and feathering someone is pretty slim. When you have a whole mob, you could go out and tar and feather anyone. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of the way it works. It's like we've got a little more courage to go ahead and be bold about our decision-making, right? if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, it, it, it definitely uh, – well, the more important thing here is not ignoring the decision needs to be made. Mm. Uh, and I don't know how much you guys buy into this, but certainly something I've found is that when you're coding, it's sort of that head-down exercise. You're sort of – you're focused on the immediate problem in front of you. And I certainly found this with Pair Program. The other guy is head up. He's he's th He sees right, the thrashing. Picture. He sees maybe we need some help. He sees maybe we should do some research here or there needs to be a decision made. I, I just wonder if that gets amplified when you have more heads. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so – 
that's uh, one thing that you brought up a, a little bit um, before this was kind of the uh, decision making can can be uh, more bold and uh, one thing that you get with that is that if there are four people there and um, a few of them are looking at the immediate problem somebody's kind of looking at uh, more of the big picture we also get a lot of the uh, moments in time where we say hey there's a new technology out there that we could be using that um, would help us on some other level and so uh, I think one one thing that we gain out of this is that um, we're able to make decisions on on switching our technologies on, on increasing our productivity uh, based on some other outside development and kind of bring it in and, and assimilate it into our work. So it's actually happened that one of you is sort of the designated uh, 30,000 foot guy. And then he says, you know, we might, I just heard of this technology, blah, blah, blah. Somebody goes to a website and pulls it up and you all read it and say, hmm, yeah, let's try that. And you just go off on a tangent that day. Yeah. yeah. And that happens. That does Absolutely. happen, and um, so I, I think one thing that that we didn't bring up yet is that uh, we we kind of do uh, learning activities. So um, an hour each day in the mornings, uh, we do uh, an hour learning session where we we go and, and search for actual things to new things to work on, new things to try, um, new ways to to approach problems. Um, and then also every Friday we do a, a longer version of that, a two and a half hour version of that. So we, we spend a lot of time trying to improve our process, trying to think of how how we can do our work faster. And so we, we've gotten kind of part of our productivity increasing uh, has a lot to do with the fact that we've thrown out old technologies, we've brought in new ones, we've started uh, doing uh, test-driven to the nth degree. Um, I, I know you guys have talked about approval tests before and things yeah. like that. Um, and uh, so we have kind of all of our UI under test. We have all of our, our business logic under test. Uh, we can see anything is working at, at any moment. And a lot of that has to do with our uh, initiative to go and start trying new things and figuring out what, what works better than what we're doing now. Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the feature list of Active Reports. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active Reports from Component 1. Smarter Components for Smarter Developers. I still got to think, you know, the side effect of this, because, again, looking at that video, it's not like there was only one computer in the room. A bunch of you had laptops open as well. I would think you would tend to Google and hunt down for more existing code and things because you have more hands to think that way than just the guy thinking through the particular coding exercise and the and the the driver actually writing it out. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, we we typically have, all have uh, laptops open. We're all discussing the current problem. We're all googling uh, different approaches and and technologies and all uh, things like that. So yeah, that is very true. <laughs> Is it a fairly common thing to start coding something and then somebody says, hey, I think I found a library that already does this? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Saves us a lot. Of time. See, I got to think, in a solo situation or even in a pair situation, you're less likely to take the time to hunt down a library. 
I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you're really hitting something here that's really critical. I think if you've got, let's say, you had a team of six people and each are working as pairs, so you got three pairs. They're each working on similar problems at the same time that have to do with the code that you're doing. But none of them is going to go, hey, this is exactly like what those other guys are working on mm-hmm. they, because they're kind of separated at the moment. So if they had done these together, after the second one, they go, you know, that's a lot like the one we just did. And on the third one, they say, we're right. just doing this over again. And then pretty soon you're going, right. well, let's abstract this out into its own library or, hey, there's a tool out there that'll do this or whatever. So we start getting this five sets of eyes or whatever on the same patterns and somebody's going to find that pattern. They're going to see that pattern happening. It's a great, it's a great thing about this. I think Dexter's got something to say here. So learning as a group also has it. One of the big benefits is that if, for example, one of us needs to take a vacation, somebody's sick, mm. they need to be in somewhere else, the whole team can continue to work together because everybody understands how or the direction that we're trying to take. Everybody had yeah. understanding of of how to do things when we do our projects. So that's really also a big benefit as far as if you're just doing pair programming, when the other guy's sick, who's going to pair with? If you have five, unless everybody's sick, <laughs> you can continue to be effective right. and you can do, do deliver the necessary progress or value that you can provide to your company, and you basically virtually eliminated silos. So you guys can each take vacation, not at the same time, and the product keeps moving forward. Yep. Yep. And that, you know, so different from your classic team where, you know, one guy feels like, the manager feels like, you know, any of them can't ever go on vacation because they individually have uh, so much responsibility in one part of the app that nobody else does. Yeah. Yeah. What about the, cool. do you have a QA team somewhere that's testing your software outside of your own work? Uh, anyone that had filled a QA role before is now mobbing with us. Interesting. <laughs> so they are programmers. They We have been assimilated. <laughs> so is there a couple of you would have called yourself testers before this assimilation? Uh, yes, yeah, so um, so I was a black box and white box tester, uh, a hunter, um, when I started the company. But I gravitated towards programming because I just saw this opportunity to really be more creative. And when once I had the chance to really join the development team, I jumped on it. And that's when um, we were still in Waterfall, but it was almost the same time that we, were, we started to really realize that there's got to be a better way to do things. And then we started to do what we now call uh, programming. Right. So the testing is just part of the process. It's naturally going to come out of what you're doing. And again, I think it's like because you have these different sets of eyes, it's safe for someone to have their mind fixed on how are we going to test that properly uh, and, and thinking bigger picture about what the testing constructs around it are going to look like. Yeah, we kind of have a saying that we, um, that we use, which is um, it's in the doing of the work that we discover the work that we must do. And what happens a lot with testing is people are sometimes waiting till something's done before they figure out how to test it, or they figure out how to test it ahead of time, but now we're testing stuff that we didn't discover we needed. It's the stuff we thought we needed. Well, in this case, we're taking baby steps every day. And by the end of each day, whatever that we've completed up to that point is fully under automated tests, 
Plus, we may have some manual tests we can run if we need to as well. So we're always moving forward a little bit at a time. We can, dis- we can discover what needs to be tested and how to test it as we go rather than that being some other process. And that means at the end of each day or during the day, we can deploy. If we have something we feel is of value to deploy, we just go ahead and deploy it. Yeah, and, and reading through your blog, you guys are clearly bought on this idea that you're always in a deployable state. Like I, Again, I'm, I keep thinking back to how do I keep management calm about these five guys working together all of the time? Are they actually that productive? But I think as long as you keep shipping the software, it's hard to argue with you. Yeah, typically uh, we, we ship, we deliver uh, into production um, at least once a day and typically two or three times a day. We, we bring code from development into production environments. Yeah, we also regarded uh, our business owner as a part of our team. Then we deliver the uh, application, then they can do uh, some kind of a test, play around, then we get a feedback right away from them. So that's very good help for us to continue. Yeah, all of our test environments are accessible by our uh, our business uh, uh, partners. And so basically anybody who has any stake in the development of the app um, will be able to start playing with it and um, and tell us whether or not it looks good, and then we can just immediately deploy to production right after that. Well, I'm awestruck. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but you know you're invited. You can come and mob with us anytime you're down in the area. Well, the big question is, do you guys have a video of you doing this? Because I think that people want to see. Well, we do have a time-lapse video that's on the Internet, uh, on YouTube. You, you've probably heard of that. YouTube. Yeah, but there's nothing that will actually, you know, could could you do you think you guys could do a demo video of, you know, give yourselves a typical programming task and show the world how it really works? I mean, hear the conversations and everything? Well, I think that's a good idea. Sounds good. <laughs> I think that that's something we should do. Absolutely. And you you you'll, you'll provide a link to the time-lapse video then. Yeah, it's in the, it's on the blog site. I've concluded it. Yeah, mobprogramming.org gets you to to most of what we've done. Great. Thanks, guys. You, this is great. I I really, you know, when I hear stuff about stuff like this, it really makes me want to go back and do development full-time again because, you know, the, it was the interactions with the other developers that really made it worthwhile to me. You know, sit, no, nothing is worse than sitting in a, in a cube, writing code in isolation, and, uh, and you know, not, not just for you, but for for the for the product so great great job hats off to you (laughs) thank you guys for talking to us thank you yep you bet keep being awesome all right we'll see you next time on dotnet rocks thanks for listening and remember pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online pluralsight.com .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net 
For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.